today is the final week of our seven series. And since mid-September, we've been studying the seven churches of Revelation 2 to 3, and we found that even in the first century, the church had problems, right? It wasn't just a 21st century church phenomenon. Uh, but here's the key takeaway we've had through the whole series. Jesus is king. Now, you may have heard that famed music artist Kanye West recently had a conversion experience and became a Christian. Now, I don't follow Kanye's music. I know him mostly because he's married to Kim Kardashian. And uh, because he stole the mic from Taylor Swift at the VMAs about 10 years ago, which was a really awkward moment. But Kanye's now been on talk shows like Jimmy Kimmel talking about how he wants to be a Christian everything and how he's born again. In fact, he just released an album entitled, Jesus is King. Now, before you get skeptical, National Review writer Andrew Walker calls the lyrics of his songs shockingly Christian. If you were a Kanye fan, you may remember that he wrote a song in 2004 called Jesus Walks, uh, but this album is quite different. In fact, he's critical of cultural progressivism, uh, individual glory, and he says social media obsession should be exchanged for family prayer. Above all, he repeatedly calls for people to worship Jesus. What a change of events. All this causes Walker to assert that Kanye's conversion experience may be a cultural wrecking ball. Now, the transformation and conversion of Kanye West creates a tension point for many of us. I mean, after all, Kanye was the artist who famously wrote a song entitled, I Am a God. Now his songs proclaim, Jesus is King. What are we to make of this? Well, I would suggest it's not our place to judge. Uh, rather, we should pray for him and we should look to our own hearts. After all, if you're a Christian, Kanye's story is your story. It's my story. Because at some point in your life, before your heart was regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you lived like you were a God, like you were the master of your life. But when Jesus entered the picture, the soundtrack of your heart shifted from I'm a God to Jesus is King. Friends, we are Kanye West. All of us, if we know Christ, have come to the end of our self-sufficiency and placed our trust in Jesus, the King of the universe. In fact, Eugene Park, writing for the Gospel Coalition, makes this observation about Kanye. He says this, Kanye's erratic life and career speaks to his inability to withstand the weight, not only of celebrity, but of self-reliance and of self-justification in any form. And that is true for all of us if we know Christ, because at some point we realize we need Jesus, but we live in an age of self-sufficiency. And so we have to be careful that our personal song is not, I'm a God, but that it's Jesus is King. Are we a self-reliant or a Jesus-reliant people? And so it's fitting then that our final church today is the one in Laodicea. And so let's go to the mailbox and open up one more time and see what Jesus has to say to the church of Laodicea. He writes this, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The final church, Jesus says this, he calls himself the amen, the ruler of God's creation. What do we make of that? Well, if there is one church that most parallels our situation in America, it is Laodicea. 
The city was situated on a major trade route and was home to bankers, financiers, and millionaires. In fact, if any city was most like New York City, it was Laodicea. Like New York City has tons of theaters, Laodicea had a major theater that was the center for the arts of the region. New York City has Madison Square Garden where there's boxing matches and all kinds of sporting events. Laodicea had an arena that hosted regular gladiator fights. New York City is Wall Street. Laodicea was the banking center of its region. Laodicea also had a large textile industry and made the finest wool clothes in the ancient region. They, they had their own fashion district like New York does. And Laodicea was also a center for scientific progress, specifically medical progress. They were famous for a world-famous eye salve that was said to be able to cure blindness. But above all, Laodicea was a city with tremendous wealth. In fact, there was an earthquake in AD 61 that decimated the entire region, and Laodicea was the only city that funded their own reconstruction efforts, refusing financial help from the emperor. Laodicea was the epitome of self-sufficiency. The song that rang through the city was, I am a God. They were a self-made people. Now, confronting this philosophy, that's why Jesus says to the church, I am the ruler of God's creation. In other words, Jesus says to this church, I am king. Because of their wealth and status, Laodicea didn't think they needed Jesus. They chose to be self-reliant, not Jesus-reliant. And so I ask at the beginning here today, church, are we any different than Laodicea? Because if we're honest... I suspect we trust our abilities, our wealth, our connections more than we trust Jesus. We live functionally like we don't need him. And not trusting Jesus with your whole life is a recipe for lukewarm faith. And that was Laodicea's problem, and that is our problem. And so ask yourself, am I living a self-sufficient life? Is my song, I'm a God or Jesus is King? You know, uh, in Northern California, there's a park called Yosemite National Park, which boasts a 3,000-foot wall of granite called El Capitan. You may have heard of it. It is a rock climber's daring dream to scale it, and some have accomplished that with the help of ropes and partners. But on June 3, 2017, a guy named Alex Honnold smashed all records by summoning El Capitan in four hours, get this, with no ropes, no safety gear, and no partner. Now, I am not a rock climber, but this guy just seems insane to me. Like, <laughs> does he have a death witch? Why would anyone do this? You could, it's more likely you'd fall and die than you'd get to the top. Why did he do it? So he could prove that he was the greatest? That, that he didn't need anyone to accomplish this feat? Friends, we live in an age of self-sufficiency, and, and it's like we're climbing El Capitan with, with no ropes, with no safety gear, with no partner. We want our achievements to be ours alone, not something that was given to us by God. We don't want to share the glory with him, and so we don't pray. And we don't take risks for God because that would mean we would actually have to trust him. 
We want to be the captain of our fate. We never want to accept help from anyone. And where has that gotten you? When we don't trust God, we will not fully live for Him. The Christian life was never meant to be one of self-sufficiency, but of Jesus-sufficiency. And so today, today I pray that you would abdicate the throne and let Jesus rule your heart and life. And taking that path requires three realizations. The first thing we'll see in the text is that we need to experience the taste of self-sufficiency. Second, we also need to see the truth about self-sufficiency. And finally, there will be an invitation to something sweeter. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and, and Lord, I don't know how everyone has walked in this room where they are in their, in their walk, Lord, but I, I pray this morning, I pray for, for myself, the preacher, I pray for my friends who are here looking at your word, Lord, that today you would convict us, Holy Spirit, that you would drive us to be people who are reliant on you, who, who see that you, Lord Jesus, are sufficient, and not us. Help us today, we pray to see your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our first point is the taste of self-sufficiency. Theologian Al Mohler makes this comment about our culture and self-sufficiency. He says this, people in our society are very prone to believe that every individual possesses whatever is needed for fulfillment and meaning, that it lies deep within, and that all we need to do is call it out. Now, in other words, what he's saying is fulfillment and meaning in this mindset are found within you, that you can create your own meaning, that you can be a self-made person if you work hard enough. If you work hard enough, you don't need help from anyone. Now, that's a very American idea, that don't show anyone your weakness, always appear to be strong and put together. But it's also a very Laodicean idea. Look at what Jesus writes to the church in verse 15. He says, I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, just like he said to all the churches before, Jesus looks straight in the eyes of the Laodicean Christians and he says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. And Jesus is giving a report card to this supposedly self-sufficient church. And here's what he says. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. What is this an allusion to? Well, Laodicea, for all its wealth, for all its power and influence, they had one major weakness, their water supply. The Laodicea did not have a good water supply. I don't know who founded this city, but normally it's by a really good water supply. They missed the memo. They had to rely on other cities to help them out. Did you hear that? This supposedly self-sufficient city had to ask for help. Hierapolis was a city nearby that had natural medicinal hot springs. And another nearby city was Colossae. And they were blessed to be, have, have a source of cold, pure water. And back in the day, I don't know if there, there was no bottling companies or cars where they could transport this water to Laodicea. Instead, they had to arrive by aqueduct, which looked like this. And so as a result, when the water arrived, it came through these, 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 uh, these pipes uh, that would corrode on the inside, the water was full of sediment. Looks like this. In other words, the water was not good. Now think about water for just a second. I'd have, close your eyes and just picture. Picture a nice, large glass of cool, crisp water touching your lips. 
It's refreshing, right? You can just, you can taste it, ah, especially on a hot day. Now, picture hot water. Picture, listen, picture a nice hot jacuzzi with water enveloping you as you sink into it. Some of you are saying, amen. Or picture a nice piping hot cup of coffee in the early morning hours. What does that hot water do to you? It brings you comfort, right? Cold water is refreshing. Hot water is comforting. Laodicea had neither. They had to rely on other cities to get water, and it wasn't even good water. Now, don't miss this. Jesus uses this image to show the church what it's like when you live a self-sufficient life that doesn't rely on him. And so he continues in verse 16. He says this, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Wow. Now, Laodicea is the only church out of these seven that receives no commendation from Jesus at all. Instead, they get the sternest rebuke. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, he says. This is the one church I always remember from Revelation 2 to 3 because this sounds so harsh. I mean, just just take that in for a second. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What? Why? I mean, why would lukewarm be worse than being cold? Now, I think Jesus is writing to apathetic Christians here. So to be cold would indicate you're dead. But lukewarm Christians are those who believe the right things, but it has no effect in their lives. And so Jesus says that, that, that is worse than being cold and dead. You got to pick a side, friends. Now think about drinks for a second. I don't know about you, but I like my coffee hot. I know some of you out there might be iced coffee people, but I think that's disgusting. I like my coffee hot. Then there have been times when I go to Dunkin' Donuts, and yes, I go to even Starbucks, and I order a cup of what I expect to be hot coffee. In fact, I brought a couple cups with me here today. Uh, stopped down by that new, uh, that new drive-in Dunkin' Donuts down the street. Got a cup right here, a cup of coffee. Um, I've even been to Starbucks. Here's a nice Starbucks coffee. Pick your choice. Some of you have, uh, you know... You know, you want to do the Starbucks thing, that's fine. Some of you even have a propensity for a McCafe right here. So we got these three cups of coffee, and uh, sometimes I go to one of these places. In fact, I've been to all of these places, and I will occasionally get a lukewarm cup of coffee. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these places, especially Starbucks. I pay $4 for the coffee, and I get a a cup of coffee that's not hot. What am I going to do? I'm going to spit it out of my mouth. I'm going to walk over to the barista and say, I know your deeds. <laughs> it's neither hot nor cold. You've got to pick one. Remake it. <laughs> Usually they do. They don't give me a hard time. <laughs> Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, and he says to us, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth just like a lukewarm cup of coffee. What does it mean to be lukewarm? It means you are spiritually apathetic, that there's no fire in your bones, that there's no no desire to spiritually get out of bed, no motivation, that if you're spiritually apathetic, you're going through the motions of your religious life, you're more concerned with what you think is your real life. What do I mean? Well, I mean that all of us whether we're here, whether we're out there, we all worship something or someone. 
And you will either worship Jesus as king or you will worship something else. So if you want to know if you're spiritually apathetic, you should take an inventory of where you spend your time, talent, and treasure. Those are the things that will indicate whether you are worshiping Jesus or something else. And when you look at them, you might find that you you really don't need Jesus to climb your El Capitan, or at least you don't think you need to. The Laodicean Christians were so bought into their wealth and success that they were worshiping themselves as their own God, and they were spiritually apathetic to Jesus. Kanye's I'm a God was ringing through the streets. In fact, commentator Richard Phillips makes it plain with this comment. He says this, the people were probably timid in their witness, unmotivated about prayer, indifferent to the sick and imprisoned, and self-centered in their hoarding of money. Now, ask yourself, is that me? He he goes on. He says, it is perhaps most offensive of all for people to affirm the glories of Christ but then to live as though they meant little. That you get here and you worship praises to Jesus, but then you go out there and it makes no difference in your life. Jesus says that is what it means to be lukewarm. Church, are you spiritually apathetic? See, the church in Laodicea was so bought into their own success and self-sufficiency that their spiritual lives were lukewarm. No witnessing, no prayer, but we have lots of money. We got a big endowment. Is that what we want to be as a church? See, if this church was a cup of coffee, and I'll just pick the Starbucks one, and Jesus were to come and take a swig of this cup of coffee, it might go a little bit like this. I'll spit you out of my mouth, he says. You're like a lukewarm cup of coffee that nobody wants to drink. It's disgusting. Jesus says you're disgusting. Now, believe me, I know that sounds harsh, but that is literally what Jesus is saying here. And your quarrel's not with me, it's with him. Church, this is what self-sufficiency leads to. That if we're more concerned with building our own brand and you're drinking the Kool-Aid of the culture, eventually the taste is not good. Eventually, you start asking, is this all there is? I mean, I got all this money. I went to this great school. I got this new technological gadget, but, but I haven't prayed in a long time. I haven't told anyone about Jesus. I haven't read my Bible. I, I've been relying on myself. I just don't have time, right? And the taste is disgusting. Church, a self-sufficient life is not the type of food you want to eat. It's not the type of coffee you want to drink. It tastes disgusting. So how do we heat up the coffee? Well, that's point two. So secondly, we need to discover the truth about self-sufficiency. Now, we have such a loving Savior here because he loves us enough to tell us when we taste disgusting. Right, somebody that can't tell you that doesn't really love you. And, he, and he, listen, he doesn't stop there. He breaks down this truth about self-sufficiency. He goes on in verse 17. He says this, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. So Jesus takes the scalpel and he goes right for the cancer that's in their bodies. Now, we've already discussed the wealth of Laodicea, but it's important here to say a few things about money. That money and wealth in the Bible are not necessarily bad things. 
right? Some of the patriarchs, like Abraham, uh, were wealthy. In fact, even some of the wealthiest people of their day. New Testament believers of wealth came to faith in Jesus, and Paul writes to Timothy and exhorts him. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And of course, many people have misunderstood that. Uh, Money is not evil, he says. It's the love of it that is. And why is that? Because with more wealth comes more temptation. And if your wealth outpaces your character, you can use wealth for selfish gain or you can use it to exert power over people. But see, not everyone can handle a lot of money. If your, wealth, if, your, if your wealth outpaces your character, you may misuse it. I mean, take Kanye West, for example. He found success early in his career. He made lots of money. But what did he use it for? How did he manage it? On himself. But you don't need to be a famous person for this to happen. In fact, I regularly have conversations with my wife about a struggle to feel adequate when it comes to money. And no matter how much money you have, there is always a tendency to want more. So wealth, secondly, can lead us to self-deception. Wealth can make you believe you need nothing. After all, you worked hard for that money, right? But But if all you are after is money and wealth, the thing that you did to acquire that money and wealth, well, that becomes your identity. That is why Jesus is confronting the church here at Laodicea. He says, your wealth has deceived you into believing that you are good when you're spiritually apathetic. So Jesus goes on. He says this, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, Jesus says, you think you don't need anything, but you're blind. Like, you don't even realize the state you're in. You can't see the truth. You don't realize you're humiliating yourselves, church. Christian, let me ask you, are you deceiving yourself? Do you think you're good spiritually when, in fact, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? In other words, we work so hard to make all our money, and what does it really get us? We have to stop and take an assessment of our lives. See, commentator Craig Keener says it this way. He says, Jesus' challenge to the Laodicean Christian self-sufficiency reminds us how readily we Christians absorb the attitudes and behaviors of our culture without pausing for critical reflection of this behavior. Because true Christians know they need Jesus. But too many of us live according to this gospel of self-sufficiency, that we live like we're our own gods and saviors. And here's what you don't realize about the gospel of self-sufficiency. It's this. It's like you're climbing an unending El Capitan. Why? Because you're relying on yourself, and you always need to keep climbing because there's always another summit to get to, and it's exhausting. That's the truth about self-sufficiency. It's exhausting. Because maybe you find some water, and, and, but the taste is disgusting, that we can never get refreshed or comforted. In fact, Francis Chan famously said this. He said, our greatest fear in life should not be failure, but succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. That in our pursuit of self-sufficiency, we focus on the wrong things, That if our mission in life is solely about making partner or growing our business or killing that last financial quarter or getting into a top-tier college, we'll find ourselves falling into bed at night exhausted 
Because the gospel of self-sufficiency will never satisfy us. Why? Because ultimately these things don't matter without Jesus. And so he offers an alternative in verse 18. He says this. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. So Jesus speaks the language of the Laodiceans here. First, he uses the image of banking and finance. He says, buy my gold. He says, if you want to be rich, if you really, really want to be rich, buy my gold, not the world's gold. And all I can picture when I read this verse is William Devane telling me I should buy gold from Roslyn Capital for my IRA. But Jesus is saying here, you need to invest in my mutual fund. The rate of return is going to be beyond anything you can imagine. That even if the stock market crashes, the earnings will never go down because they're not based on your earnings, they're based on Jesus' earnings. That even if you hit a hard season in life, you will never lose. It's like, it's like the lyrics of that old Coldplay song, Lost. They write, just because I'm losing doesn't mean I'm lost. Just because I'm hurting doesn't mean I'm hurt. See, see, when you invest in the bank of Jesus, you will always be satisfied. But if you invest in the bank of self-sufficiency, you will always think you want more. Jesus says, buy my gold. Secondly, <clears throat> Jesus says, I counsel you. I counsel you to buy for me white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And so second, Jesus, Jesus goes after the fashion industry here. He says, he says essentially here, wear my clothes. Why? So you can cover over your shameful nakedness. Now, I want to pause for a second here and ask you a really deep question. Why do we like being self-sufficient? Think about that for a second because there, there's something underneath it. See, I think the reason most of us like being self-sufficient and even strive to be self-sufficient is at least for two reasons. First, we have something to prove to someone. That maybe when you were young, someone told you there was something you couldn't do. And, and so you decided that you were going to show them, yeah, I can do that. And so your whole life is a big, a, a big attempt to prove this to whoever you decided you were going to work really hard to make something of yourself, and it may even be the reason you wear the clothes you do. Secondly, we work really hard and live self-sufficiently so that people won't really know us. Because being self-sufficient means you don't have to admit your weakness. You don't have to let anyone in. You don't have to let anyone see the real you, because if they did, if they did, the secret would get out and you would feel shame. The nightmare of people seeing you naked in school would come true. See, what clothes are you wearing? Because Jesus says, wear my clothes. In Laodicea, they had this, this wonderful textile industry that, that produced black wool, which, which was turned into some of the finest clothes in the region. But white, as we learned a few weeks ago, symbolized purity and so Jesus says to Laodicea and to us, stop focusing on your outward appearance, friends. Trust me, wear my clothes, wear my brand, and even your nakedness will, will not bring you shame. Finally, thirdly, he says, I counsel you to buy from me salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, I mentioned earlier that Laodicea had a fabulous medical industry. 
Again, not so much different from the area that we live here in New Jersey, where we have incredible medical opportunities. But in particular, Laodicea had this eye salve made from Phrygian powder and oil that was said to possibly cure blindness. And so Jesus uses that last image to say to the Laodiceans, open your eyes, open your eyes and see. Now, of course, there are spiritually blind people in this world that need to have their eyes open, but I think Jesus, again, is speaking to the church here. I think he is saying to them and to us that while we may not be completely blind, we no longer have 20-20 vision, that we have spiritual glaucoma, we have spiritual cataracts that are impeding our vision. We can't see as well as we once did. How did that happen? Laodicea had become so consumed with their self, the self-sufficiency narrative of their culture that they didn't even know they were blind. And Jesus says, open your eyes, recognize your blindness, see the truth, because self-sufficiency will never satisfy. It is exhausting. That's the truth about self-sufficiency. Listen to this. To be truly self-sufficient is to be exhausted and alone. You are blindly trying to find meaning by trying to prove yourself to someone who doesn't care and hiding yourself from the people who do. You're working 80 hours a week to prove yourself for what? Thankfully, our final point shows us there is something better, and that's an invitation to something sweeter. Jesus has said some hard things to the Laodicean Christians, but now He offers an invitation and a call to action. Verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Have you ever had to have a difficult conversation with someone? Especially if you're a parent, you had to tell your kids something hard because you love them. Here, Jesus is reminding these Christians that he loves them. Those I I love, I rebuke and discipline. And and, and as counterintuitive as that sounds, if you really want to show someone you love them, you need to be able to say hard things. And Jesus loves his church. But then he offers a call to action. He says, be earnest and repent. Now, that phrase, be earnest, is the Greek word zeleo, which is where we get our English word zealous. And literally that word means boiling hot. That Jesus says here, be boiling hot and repent. He says, if, if you, what you have to do is take that lukewarm cup of coffee and heat it up. And when you heat it up, it's going to taste good again. One of the favorite presents I got for our, our wedding, my wife and I got, was a Keurig coffee maker. My wife will attest to this. <clears throat> I love this thing, whoever invented it. I know a lot of you have it. it it's... it's <laughs> Whoever invented it, it's genius because you put a cup of coffee in there and boom, 30 seconds later, hot coffee. But if you want the coffee to be good, you have to heat up the water. And so I'll come down in the morning and I'll turn on the coffee maker and I will patiently wait as the water heats up. In fact, there's even this rumbling sound that goes with it. I put the cup in, I turn it on, and all of a sudden, hear the coffee heating up, and then just just a few seconds later, I have a piping hot cup of coffee for my enjoyment. But the water had to heat up. And what Jesus is saying here is that we have to heat up the water. 
Laodicea brought their water via aqueduct, but they, but they could still heat it up. They could put fire underneath it. How do we heat up our spiritual water? We have to repent continually, but also we have to get close to the heat source. And look at what Jesus says next. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock that if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, to get close to the heat source, you got to open the door. Now, some people see this or have seen this as an evangelistic appeal for unbelievers. Now, again, while I certainly believe that non-Christians need to receive Jesus, I think this text is speaking to the church, to Christians, that Jesus is speaking to this church who's put their money in the wrong bank, who's wearing the wrong clothes, who have failed to take care of their eyes. Jesus is speaking to the churches who have closed the door on him. And notice Jesus says here, here I am, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. James Boyce says it this way, he says, Christ is knocking at the closed hearts of those who are his, but who have turned their backs on him and shut him out of their complacent, self-satisfied, worldly Christian lives. Church, is that you? Is Jesus knocking? At the door of your heart this morning, because he says, if you hear my voice, I'll come in and have a meal with you. And that's how we turn up the the, the heat on our spiritual coffee cups, right? If we want to get it hot, this is an offer to have deep, personal communion with Jesus, right? And if we spend time with Jesus, when you sit at the table with him, when you get close to the heat source, your temperature will rise, That's what he's saying here. Now, the Greeks, the Greeks were known to have three meals a day. And the main meal in their culture was the dipnon. It was called the dipnon meal. It was the evening meal, and it was the meal where people would stay for a long time and share personal experiences and thoughts. That people would sit around the table, and they would talk about their lives and how they could grow. And and that meal, the dipnon meal, That's the meal Jesus is talking about here, that the Dipnon meal is the meal where lives are shared and transformed. And so, again, church, is Jesus knocking at the door of your heart and asking to come in and have a Dipnon meal with you? Because unless you come to the end of your self-sufficiency and let him in, you will always be drinking disgusting, lukewarm coffee. Jesus says the taste of self-sufficiency is disgusting. The truth about self-sufficiency is exhausting. But when you invite Jesus into your table, it is sweeter and more satisfying than anything you can imagine. Will you open the door and invite Jesus to your table today? G. Campbell Morgan tells a story about the artist Holman Hunt's portrait called Christ at the Door. It looks like this. You may have seen it. He tells this story about a boy with his father looking at this portrait. And as the boy was viewing the portrait, he asked, Dad, why don't they open the door? And his father answered, well, I don't know. I suppose they don't want to. Maybe they think he's a salesman. 
The boy answered, no, it's not that. I think I know why they don't. He says, I think they all live at the back of the house. And what the boy was describing was those who come to church but have their minds on the things of the world and who are eager to be done with worship, whose bodies are present but whose hearts are not open to the Lord coming in because if Jesus came in, you know that he would insist on being sovereign over your priorities, your affections, and your choices. Is that us? Are our bodies present here, but all we can think about is getting home to watch the football game? Are our bodies present here, but all we can think about is that person who didn't return our text? Are our bodies present here, but all we can think about is getting home and doing that work that we have to do? See, see, we're here supposedly worshiping Jesus, and all we can think about is something other than Jesus. Is that us? Jesus is knocking, and he says, here I am. And we can't hear him because we're at the back of the house. And I'm guilty of this. <laughs> I mean, in fact, I often wonder if Jesus is enough for most of us. Like, I've been to places, I've gone to mission trips, I've been to Africa, I've been in the Caribbean, and I've gone to these poor countries where, where people show up to worship Jesus under trees, where, where they, they come to worship Jesus and they got these, these houses with three sides and dirt on the floor, and, and they come in and they're crying out, worshiping Jesus, praising him. And then, and then I come back to America and I wonder if people would, would show up for worship if we didn't have comfy chairs, if the music wasn't to our liking. If the building wasn't climate controlled, see, would we show up for worship if all there was was Jesus? If you want to heat up our lukewarm coffee cup, what we have to do is open the door, invite Jesus to the table, and allow our hearts to be set on fire by the heat source. And that's been really the whole point of this series over the last seven weeks. Listen, the first week we started in Ephesus. If you remember, we learned about the dangers of an icy heart, and today we finish with lukewarm coffee. In between, we learned how to deal with persecution in Smyrna. We learned how to deal with doctrinal, doctrinal compromise in Pergamum, the dangers of building our own Lego kingdoms in Thyatira. We learned we can't hit the snooze button like the church of Sardis. They were sleeping. They needed to wake up. We need to endure in our faith like the church of Philadelphia, church We've learned a lot, but what are we going to do with it? Are we going to be lukewarm, or will our hearts turn white hot for the gospel? The way to do that is open the door and invite the king to sit at the table. And next week, we're going to talk about our vision series, Expanding the Table 2020. But we can't expand the table if Jesus is not sitting with us. That we have to eat with him. We have to open our hearts to him. We have to let him warm us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, Jesus has a promise for us. Verse 21. He says this. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And listen. The rest of the book of Revelation depicts great trials for the church, that there will be persecution, 
There will be tribulation. And the, and the promise of victory is to the one who endures. And the one who endures is the one who will rely on Jesus Christ. It's his finished work on the cross that gives us the right to sit down on the throne, the throne he gave to us. Not because of our wealth. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. Joseph Hart writes this in the old hymn. He says, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Without money, without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. So I'll close by coming back to Kanye West. Time will tell how he lives his life for Christ, but for now, he has a megaphone to the culture and he's using it to point people to Jesus. He appears to have come to the end of his self-sufficiency where he recognizes that he's no longer a god, but Jesus is king. In fact, one of my friends posted this picture on Facebook the other day. I've seen it making its way around. It's, it's Times Square, and there's a, in the large billboard, there's a picture of his, of his album, Jesus is King, in Times Square, in New York City. And the hashtag my friend put is hashtag word is spreading. Now, whatever you think about Kanye, that's the truth. Church, will we help him spread the word, Jesus spread his word, or will we be lukewarm? Because it's only a matter of time until the whole world recognizes what Kanye did, that Jesus is king. So it's time we showed the world that the taste of self-sufficiency is disgusting. The truth about self-sufficiency is exhausting. But when you invite Jesus to the table, it's sweeter and more satisfying than anything you can imagine. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Let me invite the worship team up for one final song, and as they come, I'd invite you to pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come before you today, and we recognize, Lord, that we are a self-sufficient people. Lord, bring us today to the end of our self-sufficiency. Help us to be Jesus-sufficient people. Lord, help us to sit down at the table and enjoy the king, to get close to the heat source, to turn white hot for the gospel, Lord. Let us not be lukewarm coffee. Lord, we love you. Help us, we pray. And we ask that you would come soon and that you would get the glory for all of this. It is in Jesus' matchless name that we pray that. Amen.